Hey, it's Leslie Dirksen, and I'm one of the hosts of the Compel Podcast. On today's episode, we have Teresa Dick here, joining us to share about church planting in South America. She has a heart to see the written word translated and read by Indigenous people, and shares with us the value of teaching literacy. So welcome to the Compel Podcast, how ordinary women spread the gospel story. Lauren Dukeman here, and I'm with my fellow host, Leslie Dirksen, as well as Teresa Dick. Um, Teresa, you're in town to visit family, um, and as we were sitting around the campfire, I realized that you have a lot of siblings, or I think almost all your siblings and both of your kids are involved in church planning ministries among the unreached. That's pretty incredible. Um, what sparked this missions bug in your family and in your own life? I um, became a Christian in high school. I Grew up in Santa Barbara, California, and we, um, I got saved through the testimony of a fellow student in high school. I was a junior, and the next year, um, well, I started getting really in, involved in a church and just this um, absolutely amazing new church family, and there was one family in that church which was who were very mission-minded. They actually have family on the mission field today. But um, they exposed me a lot to, back then we were called New Tribes Mission, but to their missionaries, both in their home, and then they invited them to the church. So there was this amazing um, missionary conference in our church and saw these slides of these people groups in South America that had never heard the gospel, people who are risking their lives to go. So I was totally impacted as a young, enthusiastic new Christian. And I thought, wow, these people they will never have a chance to hear the gospel unless somebody goes and learns their language. And I thought, well, I could do that (laughs) with my adventurous spirit. (laughs) So I um, decided to go to New Tribes Bible Institute in Waukesha, Wisconsin, after I finished high school. And then I came on here to Durham, Ontario, and this is where I met my husband, Mm -hmm. Merrill, and he, he and I joined forces, became a husband and wife, and went on to the language school, and that's where we had our first child, mm-hmm. and then on to South America. So how long have you been serving with Ethnos Canada? Let's see, let's count up the years. Well, we became members in 1976, mm-hmm. so that's what, 46 years, I believe? Wow. And has it taken you to different countries other than South America, or did you solely just go to South America? We went to South America, and that's the only country where we have served. When did you first move to the country in South America, and why did you decide to move there? We moved there in August of 1976. Um, My husband, when he was in Bible school, had been to visit that country. He had friends or roommates that had that grew up there and they had invited him to come and experience missions firsthand. So in the summer between his Bible school time he went down there and visited that field and he was very excited so when we got married we decided we would that's where we would head out. Mm. So when you moved to South America what was um, one of the first ministries that you were involved in? 
When we first got there, of course, we had to learn the national language. So we were nine months uh, in Spanish study. After you learned the national language, what did you guys do next? At the end of our Spanish course, uh, our leaders, our mission leaders, came and asked if we would consider working in a tribe that had not yet been reached with the gospel and that was an unwritten language. I was a linguist, so they felt my gifts of... um, being able to break down the language would serve well there. Merrill proved to be quite a good language learner, so those gifts together worked mm. very well for a, a new language group. Oh, that's cool. So he and another man, Gary Stevens, who had already been surveying that people group, mm. um, went out for some more surveys just to find out exactly where we would be, um, where we would be working, or where we would establish our mm. work. In the meantime, um, we had heard from. Uh, consultant that it would because this was a monolingual language group that it would serve us well to go into a bilingual area first Mm -hmm. so that we could use our Spanish to elicit the language so we spent we uh, set up there very temporarily Um, the Stevens family moved into a house that was already built it was a very rustic uh, Venezuelan rancher house mm-hmm. and we built a little tin house <laughs> so we went in there and uh, lived very for a year and a half mm-hmm. and we knew that it was going to be temporary so we didn't build an empire or anything yeah. and after that then we moved into a monolingual area in January of 1977. Mm-hmm. Is this when you had one kid or did you have two kids by that time? Um, we had just our son Josh. Okay yeah. okay. Oh I have a son named Josh too. Yeah. <laughs> One of the reasons why we wanted to have you on our podcast is to just give our listeners an idea of what it's like to teach a literacy class and the importance of literacy. And ultimately, we all know that once you establish a church and um, return to Canada, they're, they're really like if you don't have God's written word, how are the people to, you know, grow? And so we're just really seeing the importance of literacy. Mm-hmm. And we want to just emphasize that today and know that that this is something that we all take for granted. Like I, I once had an opportunity to go um, to West Africa and we were in a class of about 30 um, women and I had handed out um, these papers on the lesson and out of the 30 women only three of the women could read the paper the rest of the women took the paper they either folded it and put it in their bag or they held it upside down because they couldn't read it and my heart just sunk because I thought wow like we take for granted the fact that we can read and write and when we look at a book it just comes alive for us. We can we can understand it. And these people have no recorded or written documentation. And so I, let's just talk about that. Like from the beginning for you, Teresa, what was that like? Uh, of course, like uh, Leslie says here, the ultimate goal of our work was to uh, see a church planted and then to translate the Bible into their um, mother tongue. But uh, what good is a translation if you don't have people that can read it? Mm. So that was, uh, literacy is just a huge part of your church planning effort. 
When we first went to this people group, like I said, they were monolingual. It was an unwritten language. So they, we had to even begin to orient them on how to see things two-dimensionally. They could not pick up a book and, t- and make out a picture. Mm. So that was a big part of, of even our, before we even gave the gospel, just helping them to understand paper and how, how to even look at it. It was interesting because I remember looking, um, I was with a, a man in the, in the tribe and he said, look at that frog over there in the grass. And I looked and I, <laughs> I mean, their eyes are amazing for the things in their world that they know and see. And mm. I could not pick out that frog. His three-dimensional eyes were just perfect. Mm. But then to put that same man in a literacy class, he, that man we tried to teach and he just couldn't catch on. So this was a huge, um, yeah, it was wow. a huge task to try to teach these people. So how do you even, like, what does it look like? You sit down and you're like, this is paper, this is a pencil. Like, do you teach them how to move your eye from left to right? Like, mm-hmm. can you share a little bit about that? Well, first of all, we started orienting them to fi- pictures. We had National Geographics. We started to take photos of them and getting them developed so that they, and we would say here, look, just like you do with a child, look, there's a tiger. That's his mouth, his his, there's his ears, his eyes, and here's his tail, because they would pick up a picture and not even know how to hold it to mm-hmm. look at it properly. Mm-hmm. So that was our first orientation. And then we had like a pre-literacy book where we would put um, stories in pictures, but they would go left to right and then top to bottom. And so they would begin to read those pictures in the right order that they would eventually learn to read. And then we had um, started with symbols, same and different, or pictures, same and different. We would have to pick out the picture that was slightly different just to begin to see detail on a page. Mm -hmm. Then from then we went to letters, same thing, putting similar letters like B and D on a page, and one they had to pick out in a row, they had to pick out which was different. And then from there we went to words. So initially, was the class fairly large, or did people, were they skeptical, like, what is going on, like, what are they trying to do, did they trickle in, and, like, what was that like? We started with a class of about six men, so not very big. Um, The interest was not really huge. They had very little contact with the outside world, and I think that had a lot to do with it. They were... I think if they had seen other people reading and the and the value of it, they maybe would have taken on to it quicker. But I think the big impetus came after they became believers. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of our works try to do the literacy before evangelism, before there are believers, but for this uh, particular people group, it didn't work very mm-hmm. well. But then we also found, as we switched to younger, the younger generation, we, our first successful class was with boys around the ages of 10, 11. So did you have a lot of women interested in learning how to read? The women, it was more difficult with the women. Uh, we did have girls. We never had older women in the class. They never took an interest. Well, I, sorry. I can't say we never had women. We had a few that tried, but many of them were so busy with trying to take care of their families uh, with children, babies, it was hard for them to come to the class. They would start out and then drop out. We had, then we focused more on children and we had some girls that came and learned how to read really well, but they never really moved on to 
to use their reading skills. The young boys did a lot better, and once they learned, they seemed to keep on learning. The other thing that was really helpful in literacy was um, starting to send them letters, and they still send us letters to this day, Aww. even though we're not out in the village. But they loved sending letters to one another and to us, and that has been a big push too for them to to learn how to to write. Mm. So first, you you teach them to recognize the symbols and everything and, and reading is the next step, um, holding a pencil and actually forming those symbols. Yeah, that's pretty much it. We, like I said, we started with syllables and then words and you pretty quickly go into little stories as Mm -hmm. fast as you can. And then of course we did the syllable charts and then also, uh, in their little notebooks, they, every time they had a lesson with a new, a new letter, we would help them if they needed help. But a lot of them were good at copying from the board, so they would copy down those letters in a notebook, and we would show them how to do it if they needed help. And probably once the first person really caught on, everybody else in the village was like, what? He can do this? <laughs> Uh, yes and no. I think, yes, there was some excitement, but literacy has been one of the hardest parts of our work mm. because, um, yeah, it's just been a difficult go. Mm. So I think some of my friends have done this. They teach literacy and then they train people from the village to teach literacy. Mm-hmm. Did you guys, were you guys able to get to that point or was it such a challenge for them to value literacy or to mm-hmm. learn it? What was it like? No, we were able to teach teachers. Um, we actually had a consultant come in who helped us see that it was possible, and she mm. actually helped us train those teachers. So they, some of those are still t- teaching literacy today. Mm. Uh, what's really cool is, like I was said earlier, the first class, very successful class was young boys around 10 or 11, and those have become our leaders today mm. in the church. So it's really a huge part of of seeing a mature church and people that can read and handle the Word of God. Yeah, when you mentioned that, I was like, oh, I bet you those guys are the leaders, mm-hmm. these kids. And what a great um, just accomplishment like to, to go from moving into um, an unreached people group, n- never having any contact probably with you know an outsider to this point where they're teaching God's word and, um, and have a thriving um, church plant. When you look back, is there things that you wish you would have done different in the literacy program or things that you've learned since then? We actually ended up having to write three different literacy courses. The first one was after a model that we had learned in the training, and it was actually a pretty good one, um, but it was all written out by hand and we didn't have computers and printers Mm. back then. Um, So, and it went pretty good. And then we had another lady come in and um, she had us write up another course and it was really advanced too fast. Mm. There was too many words that we would throw in there that weren't taught properly. So then we had a third consultant come in and um, she was the one that really helped us to slow down the introduction of the material, how much you, you um, introduce in each lesson on each page. And that really did help. And even after we wrote up that course, I had to put another little book insert in there to slow it down even mm-hmm. more. 
So since literacy is so much work and they may not understand at first, like, why do I need to do this? Why do you teach literacy? Why not just do something oral, like hmm. just record the, translate the Bible and record it and just share oral recordings? So, yeah, from the thinking of from the time um, God first began communicating with man, it was, of course, early on, it was orally. But then when when the Ten Commandments and the law came, he it seemed to be very important that that word was written. So there is a precedent set there, even by our own Bible. Mm. Um, and from the Old Testament, we know that it was very important that those scribes and and the prophets, that word was written correctly. And that, I think, is probably the biggest thing that we want to have God's word written because it can change over time yeah. if, it's, if we depend only on the oral, oral um, tradition or the oral passing on of mm. truth. Um, we have a neat story. We even tell, told our, our um, tribal friends about this when we were trying to show the importance of the written word. Um, so there was a story that had been, while we were living in the village, that a, a man called Nico Noel, way upriver, had died of a snake bite. Well, here a few weeks later, he walks into the village. And so we used that story to show them how when a word is passed by word of mouth, when a message is passed by word of mouth, that um, it can't be depended on because it can change. So it uh, turns out this man saw a snake and he killed it, but he, it never bit him even. So that's how much the message had changed when it got to that village. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, and then if you think of, uh, I know many people have done recordings of the Bible, and that's a very good tool. We actually recorded our lessons when we taught uh, the Bible lessons huge good tool and it was very good for review but recorders break down mm. things break down and like right now where our believers where the believers are in our people group there is no missionary in there so if something were to break down a radio if they had a radio that to get a broadcast or if they had digital recorders or whatever those things would not last and we mm. saw lots of them break down while we were there so once the missionary leaves, for them to depend on that is not going to work. And plus, is if you're teaching a Bible class and you have to depend on a recorder, how do you fast forward mm -hmm. to that portion in the Bible? Yeah. So to us, it's very important that you have the written Word of God and to teach the people how to handle it mm -hmm. and see that for a thriving, mature church, that's really a big, huge goal for the missionary. Yeah, we want a huge value is to see them be a self-sustaining church. And if they don't have the written word of God in their own language and they're relying, they're relying on us missionaries for, yeah, the oral recordings and that breaks down then they're not self-sustaining. They're mm -hmm. relying on a source outside. And you said they're so isolated. Are there even flights? Like, do they get flights? Like, do they, have they learned the national language at all? Where we lived, uh, among the monolinguals, there's very few that know the national language there. Mm. So they, and they are very isolated now. Um, when we lived in the village, we did have flights, but because of the way the country is right now, um, there's a lot of social economic dis unrest. And so for us, they cannot be um, accessed by mm. airplane now. Okay. And then during the dry, or sorry, during the dry season, um, we can get our 
we have national missionaries that can get in and uh, see them, but that's like for four months out of the year. But they have to go in by road, and that's getting harder and harder because mm. of this the crisis in that country. Even getting fuel to ha- to put into their vehicles yeah. to get out there is getting harder. Um, that being said, also in the rainy season, they are totally cut off from all, any kind of help wow. from outside unless a government plane would land there. So how has having the word of God impacted this people group? Because you guys have been doing translation work for a long time now. First of all, how lo- where are you guys in the translation? Are you guys Old Testament, New Testament? Mm. We have actually finished the Bible translation. We did, okay. um, we did um, good par- not all the Old Testament. We did all the parts of the Old Testament that... Um, we use for our chronological firm foundation mm-hmm. series. Those are those portions are all done, and then the entire New Testament. So, how has having that scripture impacted the people group? Have you seen a change? A huge change for sure. Um, this is a people group that are animists, and of course, they do everything in their world to try to manipulate the spirit world, and to they live under a lot of fear of mm. evil spirits. I have a especially precious story um, that has to do with uh, one of the ladies. In their culture, they believe that if a child is born with any kind of bodily defect, uh, that that child is a demon child that's mm-hmm. been, the mother's been raped by a demon and um, has to be, so the child has to be killed. Mm-hmm. So they, when a child is born, they always examine it, the older ladies of the village, to see if it's... Mm-hmm not a demon child or if it's if it has any defects so when a baby's born they never pick it up until after after it's been examined wow so there was one lady we never found out about it till later but she lost her baby her baby boy she had all girls and here she had a son and um, that baby had a little funny little fold in its earlobe mm. and then it had i think webbed feet so her older brother got sand and pushed it down the baby's throat and then oh, buried wow. it together with a placenta. So those are very sad stories. And now with the believers, it was actually after this woman and her husband became a believer that they could, were able to tell us the story. And they would say with much sadness, if mm. we had heard the word of God before this, we, this would not have happened. Wow. Yeah. So... Then another story of the same type was uh, a lady who gave birth to a baby, and for some reason, even though she wasn't a believer, she felt her son was born with no outer ear. There were just little holes in the side of his head, and he should have been killed. But she, it was almost like God was speaking to her. There's no way, this is my child, I'm going to take him. So she picked him up, even though the whole village will have been totally against her. And today, or now she's with the Lord, but um, Mm. after she became a believer, she was so set free in that whole thing of knowing that this child, for sure, even with all the ostracism she felt and and for her son as well, he was not um, well accepted by the village. Uh, She was able to say, look at, this is my child, and, Mm. and God helped me save this little one for and now I, yeah, so it's just really neat to see how God's word has changed them. They also have, they have so many um, 
fears about the their world around them. They fear the thunder. They fear the rainbow. Things that God has made to created to be for us and mm-hmm. to be um, worshipped, so that we worship Him. You know. But uh, like the rainbow, they feel will devour your spirit. The thunder can cause uh, all kinds of evil things. It's like he's one of their gods. The full moon can come down and drink the blood of your children. So Mm -hmm. as the believers began to embrace God's word, all these things began to drop off. And now some of them would even laugh about some of the things they used to believe. Wow, that's just incredible how God's word has just completely changed their thinking. Mm -hmm. I just find it so incredible, too, that that woman kept her baby. Like, think about how all your village friends would every day walk by you and think, oh, you know, why did she do that? Like, just judge, and Mm -hmm. that's incredible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, again, we... uh, God's word says, you know, you're kind of judged according to... Your, your conscious. I think I think God put that in her heart to save mm-hmm. that child, and um, it was she just responded to the gospel so so quickly when she finally heard uh, the message. So, and I remember sitting in a prayer time with her, and she was just calling out to God, "You're my father," you know, just kind of like saying "Abba, Father" mm-hmm. in their language, and because of they they are very tightly. Um, Connected kinship is super important. Um, just being able to call God Father is huge for them, and they call Jesus their older brother because um, he says that he is like our older brother. There, so it's really sweet. I love that. If you could give your younger missionary self any advice, what would you tell her? I would say self. <laughs> Pay more attention to who is sending you. <laughs> mm. um, I think when I went out as a missionary, I was pretty self-confident, and I had this adventure spirit. And, and, I, and I know God uses that. I think mm-hmm. when I mm-hmm. saw that, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And you have to remember, lo, I am with you always, mm-hmm. the great I am. Um, I just think of how... When Moses went out, he wasn't very self-confident, and he said, who am I to lead these people into, to lead these people of Israel out of Egypt? And he was, of course, grew up in that culture, and he knew what he was getting into. Um, But God responded, I'll be with you, and I'm the one that sent you. So just that uh, knowing who that great I am is, and I think also of John um, 15, the bind principle, Again, you hear the I am. Um, I am the vine, you are the branches, and without me you can do nothing. So I think that prom- those promises are ones you really need to hang on to as a, a missionary. And so I would tell myself, okay, make sure you're going in God's strength and not your own. So mm-hmm. The other thing I, you know, when you get on the mission field, everything seems, you kind of have a honeymoon relationship, I guess. It go, It's just you're really... Things are exciting and new, and um, same with when we first met the people group that we were going to work with. But it was not didn't take very long when things were difficult. There were, we had 
coworkers we didn't know and we had to get to know them. So there was sometimes just things that we had to work on. Um, the people were not always so lovely. And, um, you know, there was the smells and the different things that were hard to do. And um, we loved language learning. That was kind of like our honeymoon period. That was so much fun. Um, but then when you begin to tell people the gospel, and like my husband worked a lot of years just to see that first believer mm-hmm. on teaching. And so um, when you, people aren't responding like you hope to, hope they would respond, those things get hard. And you're, you're in a battle out there. And so again, you just have to go depending who God is and not who I am. Mm-hmm. I like what you said there, because I think when you're on this side of things, you're like, yeah, I want to go to an unreached people group and we're going to share the gospel and they're going to respond. And then also this thinking, I'm going to be there for my lifetime. I'm committing my career to be with them and this people group to see them come to maturity. But that doesn't always happen. I'm seeing more and more. Sometimes they don't respond right away and sometimes mm-hmm. we're taken away. How has that been for you guys there? Well, obviously they did respond to the gospel, but it was after a number of years that my husband actually had to teach twice through the Firm Foundation series before we had our first believers. But when it did click, it was just amazing to see um, see the lights turn on. So that was really sweet. But I, I do remember times when, um, even with the new believers, where there was, just seemed like you didn't see big changes in some of them. And I remember getting really bummed sometimes. And I, one year particularly, which is was after my son had left to go home mm-hmm. to go to, to fin- f- further his education. And um, I was missing him, and our daughter was off in boarding school, and then this believer came into the house and he just complained about this and that and I just thought I just felt like I'd been punched in the stomach so it was it was just a very hard year for me and um, that that particular time it was just like well is it worth it to all the sacrifices we make but then we you know as time went on we did see many of the people come to maturity we were able to train pastors and we saw it wasn't all of them. There were some that never moved ahead in their faith, but there was enough there that it was just really neat to see how God was working in their hearts and seeing change. So what is your contact with um, your friends there? We have very little contact now because they are so isolated. In the dry season, when our coworkers can get in there, uh, we hear word from them. They send out letters and our coworkers take pictures of them and send them to us mm-hmm. and then we write letters back and he can print them out and take them in about 2 years ago was the last time we saw any of the of the leaders from that the church leaders from that group uh, we were able to meet up with them in a rendezvous spot that we have up till 2 years ago we were able to do that every year mm-hmm. uh, meet up with the believers uh, mostly church leaders and and people that we were training and I mean, most missionaries have like different stages in their, I don't know, missionary career. What stage are you at at this point? Uh, like I said earlier, we finished the translation, which, and we have seen a church established. So technically, I guess we could be finished with this work, but we really want to keep working on Bible lessons for them. So that's what we are doing now. Uh, we are living in 
BC, Canada. And so then uh, from our home, we can do up these Bible lessons. My husband does up the lessons and then I do the proofreading and also um, put in the graphics and, and the formatting of the lessons. I also have been working on some literacy, updating the literacy materials, and um, I would like to get out some more books to promote reading. We have national co-workers who are in a, a village, not where we worked, but they're in a bilingual village that's easier accessed by from town. So they are using the materials that we wrote up earlier and also the ones we keep producing for that village to evangelize there. And they also, that village uh, has learned to read only in Spanish. And they are seeing more and more as, um, as the word is being taught, there's a few people very interested that Spanish is not communicating. Mm -hmm. So they are, think many of them are starting to learn how to read in their language. So they have our literacy books that we, we uh, produced. I think that I think hearing you share, like you're working from afar, do you guys feel like Paul when he's like, he has this church that he loves so much, but he can't get to them mm -hmm. for all these reasons. And he's just yearning to be with them and hearing of their, you know, faithfulness isn't encouraging him. Do you guys feel like you're relating to Paul in those things? Yes, well, that's for sure. And I think sometimes I think of him as not that we're in prison, but how he wrote many of his letters from prison. So, yeah. so sometimes, yeah, it feels that way. Mm. Like, oh man, we just, want so much to see those people and talk to them and they're like become like our kids and yeah. so yeah it's um it's hard sometimes and we miss our our place of service and our field we miss even the national culture we grew to love because when we were in 2002 we had to leave the village and we lived quite a number of years in the mm. national city so yeah we miss it yeah oh, man it just makes me think about heaven and how wonderful it's going to be when we're all together mm -hmm. and um, worshiping together, mm -hmm. every tribe, every nation, every people group. Yeah, it just makes heaven so much sweeter. For sure, our hope. So what have you enjoyed the most these, all of these years of working in your people group? Uh, I think... Just working with the people, um, Bible translation was amazing because I was able to do different checks with the, the men that helped us. And just to see God's word light up in their hearts when they'd hear a new portion of scripture and um, see their eyes just get, wow, that's what God's word says. That was amazing. But the other was when we were still in the village and I would meet separately with the ladies. The men would have a group and then I we would have a little Bible study, and then we would sing and pray. The ladies especially like to do, they use their, actually their own cultural songs. They were, even though the songs that they used to sing were, had to do with their gods, and but they were able to use that same type of singing, the way they sing it, but change the lyrics to God's word or to things they've been learning from God's word. So one of the ladies, um, Maria Luisa, she just broke out in song one time. I won't sing it because I'm not, because <laughs> it's sort of chanty, but I'll, I'll tell you it, uh, try to say it in their language. Kodeh. <laughs> Hupari kide nambere pe. 
Huparikide, Buchuana conoparikide, Namberepe, Buchuanam baurikide, Adoka hadema hudi, Puhunipide, Hechupiohinata, Piomene, Merene, Buchana conome, Cono, Joro Merene, Adoka hadema hudi, Hunipe, Baudurande, Buchana conorian, Joro rene, Hene. Ato Abraham Pyuhuin, Dai Hiro de Hunipe, Anderpe. Ato Noe, Da Hiro Hirovede, Hunipe, Namberpe. Ato Handitaran, Handitaran, Amai, Mene Chadetara, Chaderene, Amai. Wow, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. What was she singing about? <laughs> Okay, well, a, a man in the village, her uncle had just died. He was a village captain, a prominent figure, and he had, he was a believer, so he was in heaven. So she was saying, true God, you are so good. You are the eternal one. You are the one who gives life. You are the one who gives eternal life. We are going to be with you forever. And there's my uncle. He's there with you, Jesus. He's probably seeing Abraham. He's probably up there walking around with Noah. And on and on she mm-hmm. sang about different people mm-hmm. in the Bible that she had learned about. He's probably there with them. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. That's so great. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you so much for coming, Teresa, and just having this conversation with us. And I'm just so excited for our listeners to hear about um, your work and how you and your husband just persevered in South America and the the results. And it's not all like sugar-coated either. Like I could just tell from your testimony that it was many years of hard work and just hearing even at the end there, the song and the hope that these people have now and the importance of literacy. I don't think we can emphasize enough how wonderful it is that these people have their own language written out in God's word. Like I just, wow. And just how God's word is changing their lives. And I can't imagine not having God's word and how it is a light to our path, like it says in Psalms. And so thank you so much for coming. Thank you for sitting down with us today and just sharing your story. Thank you. Yeah, and I, I have to say that, and sometimes I would be just challenged with that. Is it worth it? Mm-hmm. Well, it is worth it when you see a changed life. It was so great to hear from Teresa today, share about literacy. If you want to learn more about literacy or chronological Bible teaching, you can check out this episode's show notes at compelpodcast.ca. Thanks for listening.